Amen. Thank you, worship choir. It is indeed a rainy Sunday. This fall has, I believe, first day of fall was Friday or Saturday. Is that right? It's been a really rainy start. I heard Ron Frost welcome someone here at the Welcome Center this morning. He said, I think Noah just called. We might want to get a boat. I think that's maybe the part of the plan. I hope we don't need that. I'm glad that uh, the rain nurtures our earth and that makes everything grow in God's good plan. We're going to continue to walk through the Apostles' Creed together. Thank you for being willing to indulge not just me, but our church in doing something maybe a little different, a little outside the norms for Baptistic peoples as we are reciting the Creed every week in worship and as we are saying the corporate confession of sin. And you may have noticed a pattern to how we're doing that, and that's on purpose. It's because the confession of sin at the beginning of the service grounds us in the reality of the human condition, that we are more broken and more flawed than we ever thought actually possible. And then we say the Apostles' Creed. That was neat to say it right before Maggie's baptism today as she joins us in reciting these beliefs because the Apostles' Creed is what God has done in response to our human condition, the brokenness of sin in the world, and God, this sweeping narrative of redemption that the Creed covers. And then finally, after the sermon today, we're going to say the Lord's Prayer together as our response to what God has done for us. So I hope you see there's a pattern there. Again, this is, full disclosure, part of my doctoral work, my dissertation hinges on this uh, process and procedure, so thank you for helping me in that way personally. And I mentioned last week as we jumped into this middle section of the creed that's all about Jesus, that it's the longest section in the creed. It's all about the person and the work of Jesus Christ. And that is right and good because Jesus Christ is the center of our faith. Christianity is a Christological monotheistic religion. The creed begins this section by talking about the person of Jesus Christ, who he is. I believe in Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ, Yeshua Mashiach, the Messiah, the anointed one, Jesus, the Savior, the promised Messiah who would come and rescue the world. That's all about who Jesus is. We talked about last week how Jesus is preeminent over all, how he towers over all other contenders for ultimate worth and ultimate being, and all the other contenders for that place of preeminence fall woefully short. Today we shift from the person of Jesus to the work of Jesus. We know from Colossians 1 last week that Jesus is both the agent and the goal of all creation. All things were made through him and for him. But today we see why. Today we see how Jesus fits in as the key component of God's plan to redeem everything back to himself. So the next line of the creed that we're going to get into today, after it says that Jesus Christ is God's only son, our Lord, says the next line says that we believe that Jesus was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. 
Now, I know there's a lot of you here who, who can't get enough of Christmas. I, I, I've seen Christmas decorations already in stores. It's late September. Uh, so we're going to have a little uh, Christmas in September, if that's okay with you, today, as we talk about the incarnation of Christ and the miracle of Christ coming into our world. I know Dennis and Wendy, or really Wendy Robbins, just can't get enough. There she is. Yeah, she loves Christmas, man. I love it. She's so into Christmas all year round. And last week, Morgan and I had the privilege of taking Isaiah, our two-year-old, to a, a, a senior adult living center, which that's always an interesting thing when you take your two-year-old to a senior adult living center. Um, and we got to visit Luana and W.C. Fields, who are two saints in our church, uh, W.C., who taught that DFW Dyson Fields and Woods class for so long has been a, a, a huge part of Southern Baptist life around the world and has visited over 166, not over, he's visited 166 countries. And when we got into their room, I didn't even notice it, but Luana said, Isaiah, do you, do you see the Christmas tree? And they had a, a beautiful tree still up in the corner of their condo. And she said, WC, I started to take it down in, in January, and WC said, no, 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 leave that thing up. I love that thing. And when you're 96 years old and you've served like he has, you get to decide if the tree stays up or not. That's great. I think that's wonderful. Today, we're going to have a little Christmas. My hope is that by looking at, at Mary and, and her role in Jesus' arrival here on earth, as we look in that more fully, that we would more fully understand the work of Jesus and how we can be a part of it. Our text for this morning comes from a classic Christmas passage, Luke chapter 1, verses 26 through 38. It's a section of scripture that's often referred to in the Orthodox or Catholic world as the Annunciation or the announcement of Jesus' birth. So let's stand in honor of God's word this morning as I read this beautiful and important text, Luke chapter 1, verse 26 through 38. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth, to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying, and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. And Mary said to the angel, How will this be, since I am a virgin? And the angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son, and this is the sixth month with her who is called barren, for nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. This is the word of the Lord. 
Thanks be to God. Amen. You may have a seat. It's such a, a beautiful passage, isn't it, that describes this miraculous way in which God himself would enter into our reality. When God put on flesh, the word for that is incarnation, right? That God would come into our world through this miracle of the virgin birth. This year after uh, our sanctuary choir presents the amazing Christmas music that they always do with the orchestra and, and Richard and, and Carol and Nathan work so hard on, on putting this whole thing together every year. The next week there's a little band that's going to present a humble uh, bluegrass kind of uh, musical, uh, 12 songs called Behold the Lamb of God. It's a, a musical written by Andrew Peterson and the subtitle for that musical is The True Tall Tale of the Coming of Christ. I love that phrase. It's a it's a story that has these incredible supernatural elements of angels appearing to, to Mary and to the, the shepherds while they watched their flocks by night, and they announced that the Savior had come, that a virgin birth had occurred. And it's true. It actually happened. It's not just some tall tale. It's a true tall tale. A few verses after the Annunciation in Luke Chapter 1, verse 45, when Mary and her cousin Elizabeth are celebrating these babies that God has given to them, because Elizabeth had been barren for years and years and now is going to have a kid, and Elizabeth says, blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. Blessed is she who believed that this is true, that this is actually reality that's coming true. This tall tale of Christmas, these unbelievable circumstances, these supernatural, amazing things were actually going to come to become reality. God was going to really send his only son into our world to rescue us and to fix what's wrong with this fallen world once and for all and to make us right with himself once and forever. I think it actually matters that this is true. The, the Bible says that the way that Jesus entered our world and the way that he exited our world were both miraculous. They were supernatural. He came here by being born to a virgin mother, and he left by ascending back into heaven. These entry and exit miracles of Jesus show that Jesus was not just some guy. He wasn't just a mere mortal man. He was, is, and always will be the pre-existent word of God, the second person of the Trinity, God the Son. He came into the world that he helped create, that he sustains. And then after his life, death, and resurrection, he ascended, he returned back to heaven to resume his place of honor at the right hand of God the Father. And one of the amazing things about this line in the creed that he was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary is not only does it show us that Jesus was more than a, a mere human, but it also shows us that he was actually fully human too. Fully God, fully man. He actually was born as a human here, God became a little baby in a manger, seemingly helpless and yet the Lord of all creation. 
there's actually been a lot of skepticism, not so much lately. Scholars now assume miracles are actually what they are supposed to be, but there's been a lot of skepticism about the virgin birth in the late 1800s and the, the 1900s, the 20th century, among these modern biblical scholars. But here's the thing. We don't get to pick and choose, do we? If Jesus really is the Word made flesh who came and dwelt among us, which is a far greater miracle, isn't it? that God would put on flesh and enter into our reality. If God really is Jesus the Son, and if he really rose from the dead and conquered death and sin forever, then we should also accept the virgin birth. So let's look at the Annunciation passage here again in Luke chapter 1 to see how the birth of Jesus, how the incarnation of God the Son changes everything. So Gabriel, who's the the messenger angel of God, the the one who brings news, he comes to a young, recently engaged woman in a little town called Nazareth. It's an agricultural town. They have olive presses and olive vineyards and and these kinds of things. And her name is Mary, this young woman. And he brings greetings from heaven, and he tells Mary that God favors her. And it freaks her out. (laughs) It scares her. Look at verse 29 again. But Mary was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. What this is, is is Mary in her humility, in her simple, humble life, she wondered why in the world would a heavenly messenger appear to her? What, What possibly could she, as a poor village girl, have to do that was so special that God would come to her in the form of an angel. But God had a plan to use her for something extraordinary, to use her for something incredibly important as a key component in God's plan to redeem all of this fallen world. So Gabriel reassures her. Look at verse 30. Don't be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. The word for favor here in the the Greek is the word charis, which also means grace or kindness. If you know anybody named charis, that's what their name means, grace, favor, or kindness. Gabriel is explaining to Mary that God's grace, his undeserved, unmerited, unearned favor had been given to Mary. God's unearned favor rests on Mary. For she will be the one through whom God will fulfill the prophecies of the Hebrew scriptures about the Messiah who would come and dwell among the people of God. And we know that that was a virgin birth. That the Messiah would enter the world through a virgin birth because Isaiah, 600 years before Jesus, prophesied in chapter 7, verse 14. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel, God with us. And Gabriel tells the married, this God with us baby will be called Yeshua, Joshua in Hebrew. The the Greek form of that is Jesus, which we say Jesus. It means God saves because he would be the one to save his people from their sins. And just in case Mary's not connecting the dots here about who this baby is going to be, 
Gabriel goes on to explain in verse 32, he will be great and will be called the son of the most high. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father, David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom, there will be no end. This baby, this Yeshua, this child is going to be Emmanuel, God with us. He's the one. He's the one that the prophet Nathan prophesied a thousand years before this to King David that would come from the line of David in order to hold the scepter and sit on the throne, not just for 50 years, not just for 100 years, but forever. He's the one from whom the scepter would not depart. He's the one whose kingdom will never pass away who comes to establish the kingdom of God and announce that the kingdom of God is now at hand. But Mary doesn't understand how the miracle is going to happen because she's not married, but she still assumes this baby's going to come somehow before her marriage. And Mary's betrothed at this point to Joseph. Betrothal is not the same thing as our modern day idea of engagement, right? Engagement, you know, they say until there's a ring on it, you know, a wedding ring, then, you know, it's fair game, whatever. Not like this. Betrothal in the ancient Near East could only be undone by issuing a divorce. It was a a legally binding contract in in that culture. So she doesn't understand how this is going to happen. But now an angel all of a sudden, Gabriel shows up and tells her she's going to have a baby. What? I'm not married. How can this be? So Gabriel explains to her that the Holy Spirit is going to make this miracle happen. He's going to divinely intervene in her life and do what only God can do, the miraculous. For nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary's response to that promise is humble submission. Look at verse 38. I am the servant of the Lord. That word for servant in Greek is is doule, and doule really means something closer to a a bond servant or like an indentured servant, basically a slave, someone who is the property of another. She says to the angel, I'm God's. I belong to God. He can do whatever he wants to with me. Let it be according to your word. I'll do whatever God wants me to do. It's a scary place to be, but it's a great place to be. Mary's certainly a a central figure to this incarnation miracle, right? To Jesus' miraculous entrance into our world. But this morning, I want to make sure that we have an accurate biblical picture of who Mary was and what her role was in the true tall tale of the incarnation. Our our Catholic brothers and sisters who I love and have many friends who I believe are absolutely every bit as much of a believer as I am and that we believe in the same Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we obviously differ on the issue of Mary. I don't want to disparage anyone today, but I do want to point out what I see in Scripture and, and what I see in the Creed about Mary. First off, that line in the Creed, conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, That line is not meant to glorify Mary, but meant to show the miracle of the incarnation, of the virgin birth, of God coming to earth in this amazing way. Historically, there's there's been a a segment in in Catholic doctrine known as as Mariology, 
And, and, and Mariology mainly comes from sources that are extra biblical outside of Scripture. Mariology teaches that Mary is a, a co-redeemer along with Jesus. Mariology says that Mary was without sin for her whole life and that she was born of a virgin too. I didn't know this until college or, or later that the Immaculate Conception, you've heard of that before? That's not referring to Jesus' conception, but to Mary's. Because Mariology teaches that Mary was born of a virgin as well. And that therefore she was born completely holy and without sin. And that she remained a virgin throughout her life. But the Bible says in several places that Jesus had brothers and sisters. When Jesus started teaching in his hometown of Nazareth in Mark chapter 6 verse 3 the people in the synagogue said, is this not the carpenter, the son of Mary and the brother of James and Joseph and Judas and Simon? Are not his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. You know, Jesus' earthly family, you know, every family has their issues, right? I've learned this in being a pastor. Every family, no matter how much we look like we have it together on Sunday morning, we don't. Every family has their baggage. Every family has their issues. And Jesus' earthly family was no different. They didn't get it. They didn't understand what God was doing, that he had indwelt this flesh of this man named Jesus. And even though they had known about his miraculous birth, they didn't always understand that God was living in their own house. Look at Mark chapter 3, verse 20. Through 21, then Jesus went home, back to Nazareth, and the crowd gathered again, so they could not even eat. And when his family heard it, they went out to seize him, for they were saying, he's out of his mind. Jesus, get back in here. Stop teaching the crowds. You're crazy. <laughs> but the cool thing about how God works is he takes murderers like Saul of Tarsus, and he comes to them in this dramatic way, like a, a rushing wind, like the choir just sang about, and, and washes away the sin that is within us and puts us on the road to sanctification, to redemption, and uses us as part of his plan and part of his mission to redeem all things back to himself. He takes skeptics like me in high school and he turns them into pastors we know that James and Jude, the brothers of Jesus that were just mentioned here, went on to be great leaders in the, the first church ever in Jerusalem and that they wrote letters to their congregations. The letter of James that 45 women in our church are studying right now as part of our women's Bible studies and, and the book of Jude from which I have taken the benediction that I use every Sunday and we named our son Jude. Uh, they were brothers of Jesus even though they had been the ones that were saying, this guy's nuts, he's crazy. Jesus, he's our brother. He's just, he's not God. But they ended up becoming followers and believers of their own family member, Jesus Christ. We know that Mary, along with her children, became a believer in her own son. Look at Acts chapter one, verse 14. After Jesus ascends and the disciples regroup back in the upper room and say, now what are we going to do? Acts 1.14 says, all these disciples with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer. That's a good place to begin. Together with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus and his brothers. 
their family had been brought into this group of disciples. And, and, and I don't want to take anything away from Mary. She's amazing. She's a, a hero of the scriptures. We have these heroes and examples that are given to us in scripture that I believe we are to emulate. But Mary is no more holy, no more special than, than you or me. She saw herself, scripture tells us, as a humble servant of God, as nobody special, as a sinner who was saved by grace, by God. In the opening lines of the Magnificat, the beautiful song that she sings in, in praise and response to what God is doing through her, making her the, the bearer of God, the Theotokos, they say in the Eastern Orthodox and Catholic worlds, the Theotokos, the, the God-bearer. When she sings this song, the first lines, verse 46, chapter 1, verse 46, says, and Mary said, my soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. God saved me from my sins, just like he saved you and me, she says. What a privilege. God had saved her, and now he's going to use her to bring God the Son, the incarnate word, into the world. That's an amazing privilege. What an incredible opportunity and blessing to be the Theotokos, the God-bearer. What an amazing privilege and purpose for her life. What a privilege to, to be saved by grace through faith in Jesus, not simply so she could be without sin and go to heaven when she died, but so that she could be used by God to do something amazing. But when we cooperate with God's rescue plan for the world, it's not only a great privilege, but there's also a great price. Mary would learn that too. When Jesus is presented in the temple in Jerusalem as a baby in Luke chapter 2 and his proud mom is showing him off to everybody in the temple. And this old man who's a devout man full of the Holy Spirit is waiting there in the temple and he's waiting for the consolation of Israel. And his name was Simeon. And Simeon holds the baby Jesus and tears are coming down his face and he sings a song of praise to God and then he turns to hand the baby back to his mother and it's a joyous moment. But then verse 34 says, Simeon blessed them, this is chapter 2, Luke 2, 34. Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel and for a sign that is opposed and a sword will pierce through your own soul also so that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. The truth is that Mary would one day watch in horror as her son, her oldest child, was wrongfully accused, wrongfully convicted, and then wrongfully executed on a cross like a common thief. She would weep and wail as her son was tortured and killed before her eyes. And while most of the disciples ran and, and hid during that time, we know that Mary and the other women stayed until the bitter end at the cross. What does Mary's example mean for us today? As a hero of our faith, what do we learn from Mary's life that we could emulate? Well, first, let's remember the promise 
that nothing is impossible with God. We should expect the miraculous, right? Wasn't it William Carey, the great Baptist missionary, who said, attempt great things for God, expect great things from God. We should expect that nothing is impossible. That family member who has been so cold and jaded against God and had their heart been as hard as a stone for years, for decades, God can break that heart and give them a new heart of flesh and take away their heart of stone. Keep praying for the miracles in your own life that that cancer can be removed by the great physician, right? That ultimate healing can come from God and God alone. He's the God of miracles. He still takes the lowly, unordinary, unspecial people in our world and does the extraordinary through them. He does supernatural things through ordinary people. Second, I think from Mary's example, we can realize the privilege of being God's servant, of surrendering all that you are to him and simply saying, I am your servant. Do with me as you wish. Behold, I am your servant. Let it be according to your word. Jesus said, thy will be done, not mine. When you say that, it's, it's getting off the shore. It's scary because you're jumping into the raging rapids of God's grace and of his work of redemption that he longs for you to be a part of, to get swept away in the raging current of grace that he offers. It's the abundant life that Jesus came to bring us. Finally, let's, let's get off the shore and jump in to what God is doing and be a part of his plan. It's an amazing privilege when you're a part of that. The last thing I want us to focus on from Mary's example is to realize the price that it will cost you. When you leave the shore, when you plunge into the raging river of God's plan, it costs you everything. When you sign up for, for God's plan and surrender to him, You sign up for for heartbreak. In this world, you will have trouble, but take heart. I have overcome the world, Jesus said in John 16, 33. Mary suffered one of the hardest things I could imagine, watching her son die. But although it was Friday, she knew that Sunday was coming too. And on Sunday, she saw the resurrection of her son and got to see him again. And the joy that she experienced made all the heartache pale in comparison. The way that Paul puts it in Romans 8 is that the eternal future joy that we have in Christ makes the sufferings of this world incomparable, that they are nothing compared to the joy we have in the abundant life of Christ. This is what it means to follow Christ, is to accept the cost, to pay the price of this life of suffering in this world. To follow Christ means to give everything. Jesus himself said that in Luke chapter 9, verse 23. If anyone would come after me, if anyone would follow me as my disciple, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. The only reason you took up your cross was what? To head to be executed. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, the German pastor and theologian and martyr who I love to quote and who I love to read his books, He says this in his classic book, The Cost of Discipleship. As we embark upon discipleship, we surrender ourselves to Christ 
in union with his death. That's exactly what Maggie just showed us today. We give over our lives to death. Thus it begins. The cross is not a terrible end to an otherwise God-fearing and happy life, but it meets us at the beginning of our communion with Christ. When Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. Let's remember the promise. Nothing's impossible with God. Let's realize the privilege of, of being a part of what God wants to do in our world. But let's not forget the price either and count the cost, knowing that it will all be worth it in the end. To lose our life is to find it. To find our life is to lose it. I believe that with all my heart. Let's pray now. Our Lord God in heaven, we pray that you would help us to surrender like Mary to your will for our lives. That we could stand before you with our arms open and say, here we are, your humble slave. We are your property. We belong to you doubly because you made us for yourself. You created us for a relationship with you so that you could use us and change the world through us. But you also bought us back. You redeemed us from the pit of hell and now we belong to you in a whole new way. God, I pray that you would Help us to, to remember that with you, nothing is impossible, that you are the God of miracles. We've seen you move in our world in ways that are undeniable. All creation shouts your praise. But God, I also pray that you would help us to get off the shore of safety, get off the shore of comfort, and, and plunge our heads underneath the raging rapids of your grace and be a part of what you want to do in this world. God, I pray that you would help us to count the cost, knowing that it'll cost us everything. If we're going to be used by you, Lord, you require our time, our talent, our treasure, our mind, body, and soul. But I pray that in, in losing our lives, Lord, that you would help us to find them. That our lives would be defined not by any worldly activities, but only by what you say about our lives. Our lives would be defined by you, our Lord and Savior. And now we pray, O oh God, as you taught your disciples to pray, our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. We're going to have a time of invitation now. We're going to sing God is Calling Through the Whisper. And this is a, a neat song about how God speaks to our souls. And we've had a, an amazing movement in our children's ministry where five kids, including Maggie and my daughter May, have felt God calling through the whisper. Davy McKelvey and Elliot Karpinos and, and, and others just who, it's been incredible to hear a child say, I feel like God's spirit was calling me. Today, if God's spirit is calling you, if, if God's saying to you just what Gabriel said to Mary, greetings, O favored one, God is with you. He has shown you amazing grace and he wants you to be a part of his plan. Will you surrender to that call today? 
Maybe you've never become a Christian for the first time. Maybe you've never accepted God's grace and surrendered everything to him originally. If you need to do that today, I invite you to come forward and, and do that and talk to me about what it looks like to become a Christian. If you want to become a part of Woodmont Baptist Church like Maggie did today and, and give your, yourself to this congregation and say, I want to be a part of what God's doing in this context, I'll warn you, we're not perfect. <laughs> now, anyone in this church, especially me, the chief of sinners, are not perfect. But I will say you're welcome to be one more imperfect person with us on this journey towards sanctification and being the kind of church that God wants us to be and helping to change the world. And if you just want to come and pray at the altar today, maybe you need healing, maybe you need uh, emotional, physical, whatever kind of healing it is, and you want to pray with somebody, I'm going to ask that Trey and Jan and Brad, if y'all will come forward, and, and if you want to pray with one of these people, or if you just want to come kneel at the altar and pray as well, the altar will be open. Whatever it is that you need to do during this time as we sing God's calling through the whisper, let's stand and sing.